LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Peter Strother who joins us to discuss his book Spiritual Beings or Economic Tools, Just Who Are We? In much of the modern world, we are trapped in a loop of work, consume, sleep, repeat. Those conscious of this soul-destroying cycle are often even more dejected and disillusioned than those who blindly bow to the demands of consumerist culture, pursuing desires which are not their own, slaves to the opinions of others, and more afraid of the unknown than of hollow, haunted subsistence. Empty and unfulfilled, billions trudge wearily towards a death subconsciously feared but still denied throughout a life deemed to be devoid of either meaning or purpose. But in the early 21st century, converging economic, political, social and environmental crises are making the grinding routine of business as usual increasingly impossible. Frustration and broken promises are boiling over in increasing unrest, violence and destruction of both the system and the self. The first steps towards breaking free of the tyranny of comfort and complacency are self-awareness, self-knowledge and self-mastery, all of which are actively discouraged in the matrix of mindless media, digital distractions, junk food and instant gratification. Through choice or by force and sooner rather than later, we will all have some difficult decisions to make as the world we persist in taking for granted simply disappears. Hello and welcome, Peter, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. It's good to be here and be good to have a chat with you. Peter, today we're going to be talking a little bit about your book, some ideas spinning off of that. The book's entitled Spiritual Beings or Economic Tools, Just who are we? Now that's been out for some time. Before we dive into all this, uh, perhaps you just let listeners know a little bit about your background and your work in general. Yes, well I came, um, I started out in newspaper journalism um, in in the north of England and then I moved down to Oxford um, and and then the next step was on into London, although beyond that I didn't go that far. I, I decided to come north and explore something else. Um, I went into journalism. I think there was a, a combination of, I enjoyed writing. Writing has always been my form of expression. Um, and at the same time, I was a search for truth. There was always something in me from an early age that said there was something deeper to life, uh, this, this search for truth. I felt that I was hanging on to it, um, under the pressures of, of you know, once you go to school, uh, and then beyond school careers officers telling you seem to be dictating a certain way of life career and all the rest and the deeper questions within me were always there but they weren't being answered 
I felt by anything within that was happening to me within society. Um, the school, my school didn't really answer any of the, the questions there, even the kind of church within the school that, that I went to, uh, it was, it was more of an authoritarian, uh, a sense of morality about it that weren't an- actually answering the deeper questions about, a, about what I would call a spiritual life within myself. Uh, it wasn't being answered in my own life. And, uh, and even, uh, even when I went into journalism, it, it, it wasn't, uh, being particularly answered. That, that deeper sense of search for truth about the meaning and purpose of, of, of our lives. But it was journalism that, that I started out in. And I don't regret that, that time at all. It, uh, it is, it was a good, good career to start out in and, and, and gave me opportunities, um, to learn about the way society is constructed and, uh, the, the governments, the local governments, the way things are run, po- po- politics, economics. Uh, so it was a good grounding. Part of what you just outlined there is very much a theme that runs throughout the book. It might even be the overarching theme. To address that, we'll start by talking about where we are right now. That's you and I as individuals, people listening to this, uh, society at large, or maybe perhaps society right across Western industrialized nations and in other parts of the world in different ways and to a greater or lesser extent. Many people feel trapped and frustrated in the lives that they have. Now, they may consider themselves to be essentially happy, quite fulfilled on some level, but for many increasing numbers of people, as I say, they feel trapped within a system of a repetitive pattern of work, consume, sleep, repeat. Now, this can also speak to, you know, some of the eternal existential questions about the meaning of life. That is true. But the society that we've made for ourselves, I say, particularly in the West over the last few centuries, has locked us into this pattern increasingly and yet that seeking something else something higher something better whatever it happens to be that feeling has never gone away and it's kind of creeping back in now and i think that's symptomatic of a time of crisis and for many people now they feel that the kind of the end of end of a tether that they can no longer suppress those urges to seek something better and things are bubbling to the surface that are making increasing numbers of people feel very uncomfortable. Yeah, I, um, I, I think this, this when I was, as I talked about when I was younger, this, this, even from a young age, this deeper sense, there was something deeper within me. I, I couldn't identify it, but I, I, but I felt almost like I, I was in an alien world to a degree. You know, uh, um, I'm reminded of a quote by um, Pierre Taylor de Chardin. He's a, a French Jesuit priest, a priest, he says, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Now that resonated within me because it, it, it told me that, it tells me now, and I, and I felt it to a degree then as a, as a young kid, that we've got it back to front. And, and I, and I increasingly feel that now. I, uh, and I think that is one of the reasons why people feel a great sense of schism within themselves because under the pressures of what you're just speaking about of work and increasing pressures they are not perhaps able to haven't got the time to explore these deeper issues and if we don't explore them if we if we don't have 
the time, as I'm fortunate enough living in the Highlands of Scotland, to go walk in the hills, or we haven't got the time to, 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 to for, say, meditation or mindfulness, or just any time at all, then these things can fester away within us. These, these, these questions that are not answered. And for some reason, we, we don't understand why, but there's a sense of dissatisfaction within us. Um, of course, within society, we can have superficial things that can keep us going. You know, uh, we do well at work, for instance, we get promotion or something or a wage rise or, or, or you know, we enjoy holidays, uh, all the usual trappings of, of, a, of a capitalist society. But none of these perhaps are enduring. And I think we're looking for something enduring, um, particularly if we come across a crisis in our lives. Um, you know, someone close to us becomes ill or we lose our job or, or something fragments our, our ideal uh, life that we have within the capitalist society. And then we are almost propelled to ask these deeper questions about ourselves. Um, but uh, up until that point, I, th I think it is a kind of a festering away within ourselves of not being able to answer these deeper questions. Because I think inherently, as the, that quote that I ran out suggests, we are, whether we, or whether, whatever conscious level we're aware of it, I do believe we are spiritual, have a sense of spirituality within us. Speaking about the format of your book, that's actually quite interesting because you've got regular chapters and at the end of each one you've got what you call a little meditation, just a reflection on some dimension of what you've been speaking of. But interspersed throughout the book, you have what appear to be fictionalized accounts, and you can throw some light on this in a second, fictionalized accounts of real people's lives. Uh, all of these characters are undergoing some kind of crisis or breakdown. And I'm just wondering how you came to decide on that format and are in fact these stories of real people that you've known or heard from because uh, some of them are actually really uncomfortable to read you know some really difficult things that people are going through and uh, one of them is actually called Peter's story and I wondered if it was anything to do with you um well to answer the, your last question first no no he that particular story that doesn't relate to me it's just the names were i mean they are they are some of them are people i have known or, or reflect aspects of their lives um the reason I, I chose to put these stories in is to i mean obviously there's an analysis in each chapter of a, of a journey we take um from confronting our enslavement within the system is what the first part is called um, and then eventually we, we, we go through, um, a sense of, uh, onto, uh, discovering who we actually are, um, through a journey that we go on, um, in, uh, in, in the lives that we lead. The reason I chose the fictional accounts was I didn't want it to become too analytical. And I do feel, I mean, it's a, there's a great history of parables. And I wanted to use parables as a way of, Hopefully, um, people could identify with with the characters and the crisis that they. I mean, many people go through different kinds of crisis in their lives. Uh, it's a long journey we all go on, and 
uh, and they're multivarious, and then they're not altogether obvious ones. Uh, we're not all, always certain that we're going through something. I mean, it, it, for instance, the, the initial story that you referred to, Peter's story, is just a guy who is uh, he's newly married. Uh, he's just had the first child, uh, but work is bearing down on him, pressures of work. And there's this kind of miracle of birth of this, this child that comes into his and his wife's life. Um, and he sees it as much more just the birth of a child. It's, it's something miraculous about it that he can't quite identify with, that it's beyond what we would normally understand. Uh, but this pressure again, there's no time to explore this. And again, I want to talk about festering away. He, he feels the pressure of work. He's had his short paternity leave. He goes back and, and you know, the things are piled high on his desk. And, and, and again, these deeper questions he can't a- answer. Uh, and then pressures come in on, 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 uh, 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 to do with his work. He's, he's moved to, he has to take on other responsibilities, has to take work home at night. You get the picture, and I think that happens to a lot of people. That increasingly in the capitalist society, there is there is a greater demand that people produce more uh, in less time, uh, and not necessarily for, for good wages. And, and that has a massive impact not not just on, on on your work life, but on your home life too. It has an effect on your loved ones, uh, and and. You know, I, I wanted to explore that uh, pressure within people. I'm happy to say most of the stories, you know, come to some kind of resolvement. Um, you know, people, the, the light that they that they feel within themselves, situations happen, not necessarily of their own volition or, or desire, but they, things do happen um, that bring about a change uh, which which... Um, it brings about a sense of awareness, uh, which the, which they are uh, transforms their lives. Um, as you say, it's not always comfortable, but then life isn't always comfortable. It's often very uncomfortable for people, and I think that perhaps reflects the journey we go on. It, you know, for, for most people, there are very difficult times, um, and but at the same time, there there is enlightenment, there is hope, um, and an enduring sense of hope. And, and, I, and hopefully, um, the, in, the, in, the, in the world we live in now, that is, is still coming to the fore. I mean, you know, the present environmental situation, for, just as one example off the top of my head, you know, that there is hope in, 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 the, in the sense of the young people's reaction through Extinction Rebellion and the, that is going, uh, taking place at the moment. And, and uh, you know, I, I, you know, for future generations, I, I, you know, speak to young people. I, I do feel that there is a great sense of hope within them, despite the difficulties of the world that they have been born into and are confronting at the moment. You mentioned earlier uh, the sort of the feeling that many people have, and perhaps they be they can be a third, halfway, three quarters of the way through their life before it really dawns on them that they've been steered into uh, a path. That was not of their own choosing and you also made a passing reference to careers teachers at school and I like to tell a little anecdote of my own one particular meeting with careers teacher uh, when I was a teenager and he was actually the biology teacher I don't know why he was giving careers counselling because he didn't seem to like being a biology teacher so I'm wondering in what what qualifies <laughs> him to give careers advice but I remember saying a little bit vaguely articulated saying not sure specifically but I really would like to do something in music 
And the first thing, he just came straight back at me and said, oh, perhaps you should be a bit more realistic. And yeah. that kind of summed it up yeah. for me. Uh, but our, yeah. our desires quite often are not our own. The path that we're on and then subsequently what we think we want. And whether it's family pressure, you know, some people, I've known people who've gone into high profile, high powered careers that they didn't really want because of the family kind of expected it or it would, it would please the family. Whether it's peer pressure or whether it's a kind of corporate state that steers us collectively in certain directions. Some people kind of feel they want something different, but one of the problems in getting past all of what I've just described, all of that pathology, is actually knowing what you want. And many people have never really honestly asked themselves that question, and it's not really encouraged. You know, what do you no. really want? Yes, um, and um, no, I agree with that entirely, and, uh, um, and that can lead to a great crisis later in your life if that, that, if that life kind of falls apart, um, particularly at, at work. Um, you lose your job, particularly many people have lost, lose their jobs at some point in their lives. Um, there is a, that's a very good quote. This one actually in the book, um, by the theologian Albert Schweitzer. Um, what he said was, uh, because society with its developed organization exercises a hitherto unknown power over man, man's dependency on it has grown to a degree he has almost ceased to live a mental existence of his own. That comes in my, in my chapter of, of, of the collective, uh, about the, the collective mindset, which I think runs through so much of society. It's almost become a mantra of about the way we're supposed to exist. Uh, and, and that carries us along. And while things are going well, that seems to be okay, but there are so many things that happen to us along the journey. Um, you know, whether it's a career or, or, or families that live, we then have a family or, or whatever, but so many things can go wrong along, along that journey. Um, there's a security in it in, in some ways if things are fine, but it, it, at the same time, it doesn't truly particularly when things go wrong, it doesn't define who we truly are. And, and if we don't answer that question, then there is always something missing. And um, so to me, it, there's a certain deceit about it, about this existence, um, because it doesn't, and it, you know, whether this is to do with this fairly society, certainly you can point to the churches and, and, and religion, because in many ways they are, part of the institution themselves when I would argue they should be separate from it. Um, you know, what on earth, for example, are, are bishops and archbishops sitting in the House of Lords for, you know, part of that institution? You know, they, sh they should be there to offer people spiritual guidance rather than being part of the institution, that, you know, the establishment itself. Um, so I... I totally understand, you know, the, the, where you're coming from with the, with the question, and it's. I think it, it is. It is very hard for people. You say later in life, or at any stage in life, if there's a crisis, people can suddenly be confronted w with, you know, in a quite a shocking way with, you know, what is, what am I, you know, how many people have asked that question, you know, is this really all there is to it, you know, uh, at some stage in our lives. I mean, I carry that question with me throughout my time in journalism and beyond, but, uh, you know, uh, 
for some people, it, it suddenly can come at them, you know, through a crisis. Uh, the other thing society does, it, it, it is, it, the, there are rewards in society, but they can lead us into secondary, what I would call addictions. Um, you know, the kind of, of things I'm talking about, where there are, there are these rewards, alcohol and, you know, other things that can lead into, you know, gambling. These, these sex, even retail therapies are you know, particularly prominent one at the moment. And people feel that the rewards are, are worth it. Um, but again, this is all disguising the deeper truth, the deeper journey that we need to go on. But even people who have been materially, uh, you know, who've wanted for nothing in their lives have reached either a crisis coming at them externally or simply facing their own mortality, facing their own death and being haunted by exactly the same questions. And then suddenly all of, and again, I don't think that material things are necessarily the enemy. It's just our view of them and how important we deem them to be but as i say people who wanted for nothing are left facing the same questions you know when all is said and done yes no absolutely uh um, strangely for a book like this uh, i quote uh, the queen um in the at the beginning of the second half because i can remember she had a horrific time at one point and we all know you know there were various divorces in the family uh, children and we know how that can all affect us all and I, and I do mention in the book that I mean and no more no one a very few people are more wealthy or, or protected from you know, what is going on in society than perhaps she is but at the same time these deeply personal things um you know when none of us are protected at that point from what what she went through at that particular time um, I, I understand she is a very spiritual person herself, but still at that point, she, she, none, none of us are protected from these things. So it, um, it can make things slightly easier, but not, you know, but not particularly when things are happening to those we love. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm not particularly talking about her now, but then at that point, any of us can face crisis and we have to, um, go on a deeper journey at that point and perhaps in the second part of our life perhaps before then but it is I do believe it is a necessary journey and because um, we're going to have to confront it at some point uh, um, I'm reminded of a story um, when I, I mean I've I have had uh, been involved with both churches the Anglican Church I was confirmed in and, and the Church of Scotland since I've been up here I've been very much on the margins of the church but have uh there are a lot of good people in the church too, but the story relates to an early day when I was confirmed in the Anglican church. And I was 20, what I would have been, 27 years of age, and I went uh, to be confirmed. And what I noticed was the people in the church were either 14, a lot of 14-year-olds around that kind of age, or the rest of them were in their kind of mid-80s. And I was just very in the middle, kind of, well, slightly in younger but largely in the middle and the bishop of chester who confirmed us that night said what on earth are you doing here and i said well what do you mean he said well the 14 year olds you can see there have all been forced to come by their parents and the 80 year olds are all there because they're facing the end of their lives so what on earth are you doing here at 27 um and i you know and i understood what he meant i mean i was there because I was confronting that crisis in my life where that deeper meaning had finally come to the fore and I was having to answer the question. 
but um yeah i mean that is the what people are confronted with you know uh you know it's uh, it it tends to be towards the end of our life but it can happen at, at any point um and it is a necessary journey that we have to go on and yet when it comes to trying to make because for a lot of people that they'll feel the need for it the urge for it but they don't know where to start for many people it will involve work or relationships or perhaps some combination of both this temptation to play it safe and keep your head down in anticipation of some great reward towards the end of it, which, as we've described, is really a false promise. We are deterred in making change by two things in the main. One is the fear of the unknown. So we'll better the devil you know. You know, at least I don't like my job. Yeah. I don't like my job. My relationship is more or less fizzled out, but at least I know what it is. It's a known quantity. And yeah. there's also what other people think, peers, you know, because... I always like to use the analogy of the little, you know, the story of the crabs in the bucket. One crab trying to crawl out of the bucket to get itself free and other crabs, this has actually been observed, other crabs in the bucket pulling that crab back down in again. Because, oh, where do you think you're going? Because if you get out of this, then that means the rest of us can do it too. And then what will happen? Yes, and none of us like to be alone. and what None of us... Um want to feel we're going on a solitary journey. None of us want to feel we're going to be laughed at or humiliated. I mean, I certainly felt that at school, uh, obviously, when I was having these deeper feelings. And um, certainly even then, and certainly more so now, uh, uh, very few people were uh, seemed to be thinking the same thing as I was. Um, I d- didn't even, uh, you know, bring, bring it to the surface. Ultimately, I do believe it does involve... Um, a leap of faith. Um, that's one of the names of one of the chapters on a book. I think the crisis that we're talking, I've been talking about, I think that can, it may go away for a certain time. But there is all, and always another thing that we can go through that is around the corner. And, um, if, if we've opened up anything at all, it will, it will come back towards us. Um, that's a, a second story uh, I look at there, that, um, a fictional story. One of the fictional stories is a chap called Ed, and he um, uh, goes on a... He's, he's going through a bad time in his, his life. He's, he's, he's had a numerous relationships that have been unfulfilled, unfulfilling. And the, the latest one, it seems to be going on the rocks as well. Um and he decides to go away just on a kind of pilgrimage. It's a holiday, but uh, he ends up on the isle, close to the isle, isle of Iona, which, um, as many, many people will know, is a, is a spiritual, has a spiritual community. I'm an associate member of myself of Iona community. And, um, he takes off on this journey almost in spite of himself and meets someone on that journey. Um, and, he trudges a lot across the island, but he's, he's absolutely defiant um, that he won't have anything to do with it. It's, um, ultimately, though, he, he ends up in the abbey on, on the island, and uh, um, and he, he realizes that some of the people there, because I met people on the island, have been on courses on the island, there are, they are at least genuine and if anything he's discovered in, because he has been a journalist as well at different times in his career, and he's 
discovered a lot of cynicism in that job, but, some, but something he does appreciate and he doesn't notice there is that there are genuine people there who are going through things themselves. And I've been on nights in on the Abbey and Iona where people are um, coming to terms with things. Um, and it's, it's an extraordinary place um, where people... Uh, have deeper experiences um, there, the unique setting of both the island and the abbey. And uh, he goes through that himself. He's forced to confront truths about why all the relationships in his life have been breaking down about the very nature of um, uh, his existence. And uh, he, he finds there are actually people there that care about him. Um, for no particular reason, he always feels, has always felt in his life that things have to be earned. And these are what he's finding for the few people there, as these are unearned. Um, uh, that's rather really the capitalist system that we live in. Every, we almost feel that everything has to be earned, that things cannot, we cannot receive things through that word grace. Um, you know, there's a lot in the Christian um, religion about the, the the grace of Christ, um, things being given for free if we hand our lives over, and that is what a leaf of faith becomes. We have to, in the end, um, hand our lives over. I'm reminded uh, of uh, when I was le- I didn't learn to swim. <laughs> rather jumping from one thing to another but it's an anecdote so uh, I was 27 years of age uh, my parents always kind of were, were quite fearful people particularly my mother and kept me away from um, swimming uh, whenever I felt that you know she felt that it was slightly dangerous anyway I finally learned because I was going to do a bit of traveling that you know, if I, I perhaps should learn to swim in case I got into difficulties and um, anyway, you did went through the old armband thing, which was slightly embarrassing at 27. But ultimately, it came to the point where the armbands had to be taken off, and it was clinging to the side of the pool. And the instructor, she said, "Well, there's only one thing to do now. You've got to let go. Uh, gonna, you you will be able to swim, you know. Um, but ultimately, I can't do anything for you at this point. You've got to let go." You know, because um, you cannot swim with armbands on for the rest of your life. You might find it a bit embarrassing if you keep doing that. So ultimately, I did let go, and and the, the feeling of exhilaration um, at suddenly finding that I could do it all along. You know, ultimately we have to take that leap of faith, and um, you know, out. You know, we have to confront the crisis. Honestly, and then we have to take that, take that leap of faith. But not for one minute do I think it's easy. It, it's, uh, you know, particularly in the society where they live in, which is, as you suggested, um, you know, you can feel very isolated in doing a situation like, you know, t- taking that step yourself. We've touched upon something there, which is interesting. Uh, I believe seems to be the case that nature and nurture are both tremendous influences on us uh, in many ways between them. They make us what we are, but we're very influenced by our upbringing. There's no question about that. And you mentioning about your parents being sort of somewhat fearful people reminds me how in your book, for example, that in Peter's story, you describe a man and to a lesser extent, a woman, a husband and wife, not having the time to be proper parents. 
And then if you combine that with all the pressures on children, especially in the societies we live in today, you know, to grow up quickly, everything to do with social media, uh, pressures to succeed at a younger and younger age, sexualization of children at a younger and younger age, becoming so more competitive when what they should be doing is just discovering the world and discovering themselves. And this reminds me of the circularity of it all, you know, how the sins of the father are kind of passed on and many people struggling today in whatever dimension or capacity in their lives may be carrying something on from those who came before them. And that's another cycle that can be very difficult to break. Yes, um, that, it's that relates to, um, although you mentioned Peter's story there, is actually um, an, another one of the fictional stories Robbie, which is in the chapters about the collective mindset, he he's a, a young man who uh, idolizes his father, and his father is his his like he's he has his own business. He's a self-made man. Uh, he, his ideals are what we come across so much in society, which seems to justify the existence, the, cap- the capitalist existence we have, with all this existence within the system, where his, his ideals are, you only get what you work for. Um, if anyone gets in the way, you need to battle them out of the way. This kind of approach to life, doesn't matter who gets in your way, you just get ahead of, ahead of the game um, and do anything to head it. And the boy... Uh, the way, because his father runs this business himself and he sees him in action, he's an uncompromising character. And the boy's taken in by by his father. But he's, he's, he's an element that, and then he ignores the fact that the father is actually a bully in other aspects of his life, particularly in abusing, physically abusing his mother. Uh, he kind of blocks that out. Uh, and uh, e- equally out in society, he can be in the pub and uh, can end up, you know, ruling the roost and, and uh, bullying people at work. Um, anyway, he eventually, the father, he likes to drink too, and it all comes to the head for him. And he he, he does die early in the, in the boy's life. He's a teenager. And suddenly the, this boy is confronted um with what has happened to his father, someone he had, as I said, he idolized. Um and but he he almost as you just saying the sins of the father, he carries almost starts reproducing his father's life as he would see it. He almost wants to do better than his father. Because this is all he's ever known. And it's been rammed down his throat, which often happens in I mean all the pressures, as you say, coming through the media about how we're supposed to live. People are facing this all the time. And, uh, you know, pressure through social media as well. And the boy almost starts repeating the same life. He mistreats women. Um, uh, you know, he just uses them. Um, and um, the mother begins to see this and she tries to point this out to him and also to point out how she was abused by this man but he doesn't want to hear it I mean there is a solution that I'll leave there that does come out the boy does meet someone a woman who he falls in love with and it begins to affect him but he he just follows up until that point a pattern of life almost has been laid out for him by his experiences through his father and I think a lot of people do go through through that, uh, because it, it is all they've ever known, again, until something happens in their life 
that forces to confront something else or the influence of other people, as in this case, the boy's mother and this new person that comes into his life. Other people can influence us. They can change us. We see something that, you know, it puts big questions in our mind about the way we're living our lives. Well, this attitude, this approach to life that we've been discussing, the sort of go along to get along, putting up with a lot of dissatisfaction and lack of fulfillment in exchange for baubles and trinkets, that in itself, as we've already alluded to, is becoming harder to sustain. We have economic, political, social, environmental crises converging as we speak, and you describe how the nine-to-five routine has become more like a sort of a five to nine routine now as work-life balance turns into work-life imbalance and these sugar highs of sort of consumerism and hedonism are getting ever shorter and the hangovers are getting more painful so we're having this conversation now really because so many people who have been going along to get along are being confronted by the, the need for change in many cases it's kind of like whether they like it or not as you mentioned you might just be made redundant uh your marriage might just fall apart it's, it's ever more likely that something somewhat unpredictable or dramatic may take place that forces you to change course or suffer the consequences yes uh, i i think what we're seeing in, in society at the moment um is uh the the system the establishment are very good at diverting blame for dissatisfaction in people's lives. I mean, obviously, 2008 austerity has had an impact on millions of people's lives across the world that, um, and in so many different ways, not just economically with um, greater poverty in the world, but whole swathes of people have been affected. I mean, I was brought up being told, I remember meeting a, an old politician, I remember, remember the name is a conservative, William Whitelaw, years ago when I was very young. And I was extremely dubious about um, the capitalist system even then, and particularly because he was espousing his searches and he kept talking about the trickle-down effect. And um, I've been waiting for this trickle-down effect for a long time now. <laughs> and, uh, I can't say, can't see it's been trickling down to many people in society. In fact, the opposite seems to be happening. And I mean, there's always been poor in society, even in, in a wealthy country like Britain. But now increasingly, as the wealthy, the wealthiest in society take more and more, I think six, certainly since 2008, more what we, what we term in this terrible class system, middle class people have been drawn into poverty. And, you know, we, we talk about working people needing food banks uh, as well now. Um, so I think the system itself, by its very nature, uh, dependent on um, growth. Um, um, but the problem is, if people keep taking more and more all the time, there's not going to be enough people um, in society. If, if the poor and the middle class haven't got money to spend, then the system ex- itself will eventually implode um, because it requires people to spend, to earn money, to spend money. And in society, the richest tend to be the ones that perhaps don't spend it the most. They tend to hoard it as well. So the system is in trouble on on, on an economic footing uh, to begin with. It is also 
and a very unjust system, I, I find. Um, and I think this impacts on all of us. Um, you, there's been so many crises in my lifetime or, or to do with poverty. Um, today, I think uh, I read a year or so ago, I don't know the figures have changed, a person died directly because of poverty or the causes of poverty every 15 seconds in the world. It's something like 9 million people a year just dying of, of poverty. Um, and I think when, when that comes onto our TV screens or, or that has a, a psychological at some conscious level has an effect on us, you know, um, you know, it says a lot about our media today. One of the difficulties I have with it is, you know, certain things get covered for a very short time, um, particularly if they're not happening close to home. Um, I mean, the recent uh, environmental crisis in uh, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Malawi, you know, how long was that? A cyclone Ida, and then there was another one that followed it. Um, it was on, on, the, on, our, on our TV screens for a few days, and then, and then there's been a cholera epidemic that's barely been covered. Another cyclone's gone through there, but, it, you know, it's not been covered, you know. Um, if that was happening closer to home, of course, but still, I think people are aware of, you know, because there are so many stories like this, and I think it, it, it has an impact on us. So I think there is an awareness within our lives that things are beginning to fragment. Um, we haven't even touched, of course, about the environmental situation, but um, I think just the system itself, the pressures people have been under since 2008 particularly, I, th I think there is a sense that things are beginning to fragment. But what, of course, um, the system does very good is divert attention, blame various other uh, people in in the world for what is happening. Um, it could be argued that, uh, I don't particularly want to bring up the subject of Brexit, but I mean, it, 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 some people would argue at least that, um, you know, blaming immigrants, blaming foreigners, blaming what is happening for these people coming over from the Middle East, you know, they're an easy scapegoat, just like they were in the 1930s, you know. And uh, But again, this just diverts attention from the main issue, which is the deeper side w within ourselves, um, needing to explore that at times of crisis, rather than diverting attention, um, um, you know, away from that, from that journey. But I think we are reaching a tipping point whereby we are going to have to because of the environmental crisis, because of the crisis within the, the system itself, I think we're, we're going to have to confront these truths um, sooner rather than later. Now, I just want to say from my personal perspective that um, I've hinted at this earlier, I don't believe that individual achievement or material wealth or goods are the enemy per se. We live in mm -hmm. two, we live in two worlds, a material world and there's a non-material world or a spiritual world, whatever, whatever you want to call it. You know, there's something other than just day to day material dimension of our life, but it's a question of balance. So, but having, exactly. having, having said, having said that, you're right about, uh, contracting growth. You know, we have an economic system predicated on perpetual growth, which is absurd, impossible on a finite planet. 
we see, you know, we're using GDP figures often as a measure of our well-being, and this is supposed to transfer across to our personal and our inner well-being, which of course it can't. In any event, those figures are under pressure, downward pressure. And you, you and I are both old enough to remember talk about life in the future, you know, back in the seventies and eighties, and projecting how things were going to be, how utopian things were going to be in three-day weeks and extended leisure time, and all the automation that was going to come in, and all the mundane tasks will be done by robots. Blah blah blah. There have been tremendous advances in technology in our lifetimes, but that techno future hasn't quite panned out, and we're looking at a situation now where. In the world in general, so many of the poor in developing countries may, as things stand at the minute, may never achieve the things that they aspire to that you and I somewhat take for granted, you know, like a fridge, clean water and enough food to eat every day and a roof over your head. They, you know, may never achieve those things. And that's, you know, a very sobering thought. But also closer to home, we're now seeing, and it's almost a daily news item, how the next generation, younger people, are going to be less well-off than the generation that came before them. And again, that was seen as almost like an unthinkable impossibility at one time. Yes, and it's coming to terms with that. Um, uh, I think the environmental crisis is, is particularly um, what is, is putting that in, in the forefront of our minds. Um, I think the irony of it, um, I mean, I agree with what you're saying, but wealth per se is not a bad thing. I mean, it, you know, um, I, it, it just, because of the figures I read out about globally, the amount of people who are dying, you know, every single day because of the injustices of the system. I, I think, and, and then environmentally as well, the pressures. I think we, we do need to move, and I think there are movements towards a simpler way of life that offers a, a kind of still a quality to our life, but we do have to face the fact that we do have to cut back. That doesn't mean going back to some extremely austere system at all. It just means um, shifting away from what I think is becoming a, a kind of an, what I would call an entitlement society to a greater awareness of what we already have in society, in our lives, um, which perhaps we take for granted. Um, and, and as part of that, moving towards a sense of personal growth within that, rather than this obsession with economic growth, which I think you just referred to. Um, so, you know, it is going to be... a, a a dramatic change for us. I mean, we, we've, you know, there is so such disparities in the world. For instance, there are people who fly an aircraft um, business-wise, not just holidays. You know, it could be on a plane five times a week. And, you know, this is a pleasant debate about new runways at Heathrow, etc. And, you know, the fact is we will need to cut back on that, you know, um, uh, and uh, our politicians are not doing us any service by, they, 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 they talk about recognizing the environmental crisis that we face, but at the same breath, they talk about only as long as we can continue to grow. Well, as, as you've just said, you know, you, you cannot grow infinitely on a finite planet you know so we need and I, I think environmentalists are beginning to recognize uh, even people like George Monbiot you know are talking about 
questioning the capitalist system him, himself. It's taken him, as he admits in a recent article, uh, a while to get to that point. But it, you know, it, you know, he is talking about some of the actions now that we need to take. This question of, you know, eating meat, you know, uh, you know, the, the vast amount of land it takes to, um, you know, with regards to cattle, etc., and, and the cutting down of rainforests. You know, we would do need to modify our way of life. We do need to think about the wider world we live in. You, re- you know, referred to other people wanting some of the. You know, the fortunate with the things that we've enjoyed in our lives. That doesn't mean, as I say, going back to something austere or saying, well, none of us can have washing machines anymore. But, you know, of course, I don't mean that, but it, it does mean we've to think about, it does, it will mean for our future generation. And, and it, as soon as we start with that, in fact, many people are already doing it. Many people are moving in, for instance, there's a great movement with smaller, Eco houses in the world. Many people moving into smaller houses, and and there are many communities around the world where things like that are taking place. So there is an awareness of it to some level, but on a, on a on the level we require, we do need. And of course, this is so difficult with politicians because they're ultimately all about getting elected, and the last thing they want to confront the general population with is a need to reduce. The quality, you know, the quality of our life by any amount. And I've always been talking about. I mean, even tonight on 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 the news, uh, uh, someone talking about. Yes, we need to face these environmental responsibilities, but I do believe we'll still be able to increase. Never mind, just maintain the quality of our life. I find that extremely dishonest, and and, and I think our politicians and, and behind them, the multinational companies. I think that, you know, they need to be honest with people for the sake of their children and our children. Well, the way these things are argued quite often by politicians, they like to invoke statistics, don't they? And I think you can only go so far with those. But I think that a lot of their statistical mantras and indeed other things that they like to repeat ad nauseum are increasingly sort of emperor's new clothes. You know, for example, they'll say things like, they'll quote various indexes and numbers at us about how well we're doing economically or in terms of uh, social issues but the reality on the ground is just if not completely then somewhat at odds with that and increasingly people are going well that's just not my lived experience you can say what you like uh, for example one thing that they keep doing they have done in the last few years uh, particularly since the big financial crash of 07 is talk about the number of people in employment and in recent months I've heard politicians talking about that. The number of people in employment, you would expect, given a completely neutral background in Britain anyway, you would expect that to go up because the population's increasing. But I've never heard anyone say, they never really address the quality of work or how many hours people are working, what sort of jobs they've got, but they never say things, well, er, lots of indices are going to be going up because the the number of people in the country is going up. That's just a simple little point, but I've never heard a single politician address that. No, and even even the opposition, you know, struggle to question them in, in the right way, and of course journalists to ask the right questions. Uh, yes, I mean, it, whenever I hear that, I, I'm staggered that there isn't a response. It says, ah, but the number of people on zero hours contracts, the number of people on a minimum wage, the number of people who, I mean, the, on part time work. You know, there, there are there are families with both parents working, and they're still 
you know, they're struggling to end, make ends meet. I mean, that, uh, as you referred to earlier, you know, I can remember as a child, one way used to be enough. Uh, but at the same time, people are under pressure to have more and more things to keep the system going. You know, we, we have to buy uh, more and more goods. Uh, and at the same time, the quality of those goods isn't necessarily of uh, the standard required. Uh, uh, I spoke to a joiner recently, and he, he was putting in a new kitchen in the house. Uh, it was the first time that kitchen had been changed in, in 20 years. And the first thing he said, well, this one won't last as long, but if the quality of the product is nowhere near as good, you'd be lucky to get five years out of this. It's almost like the system deliberately does that, because this is the only way it can maintain itself, is by people having to spend more earn more and more money to spend more and more money to earn more and on and on it goes that's a form of enslavement to me you know it it, it, it is keeping people locked into a system that ultimately i think is and perhaps was to start with rooted in fear in a, it doesn't have any faith in something beyond this life so it is rooted in fear, and, and and the fear, and the control that the system has on us, forces us to exist like this. Um, and it doesn't like people thinking outside the boxes, to asking deeper questions. You know, you you, you see the the political control uh, within the, the media that's tied into it, and um, and it is very hard for people to see with you know, outside of it, if they don't come across something in their personal lives that gets them to ask these deeper questions. Um, but I think what is happening in globally, in an economic sense and environmental sense, and also socially with the great divisions and the injustices in society, I think this is bringing things to a head. I don't think those in power can control it for much longer. Well, this cycle that you described, you know, that sort of work, consume, sleep, repeat, that as I mentioned at the top of the hour, the, the end, yeah. of, one of the manifestations of, of that coming to the end or coming to an end, uh, or at least a, a, a seismic change is what I call the, the syndrome when Walmart employees can no longer afford to shop at Walmart, yeah. in, which is ultimately what I look at. Cause I've, I talked to, I came up with this idea in my head because I'd seen something a new story in the US about Walmart employees and you know, their working conditions and how appalling they were. And I was talking to a girl who was working at the checkout at Sainsbury's and she was saying she shopped at Aldi because Sainsbury's was too expensive. <laughs> and that's yeah, ex yeah. exactly what I'm talking about. In inevitably, the system is is going to get more and more desperate. I mean, it, it, as I say, the, the wages are, are, are less. The zero-hour contracts... You know, it is trying to give people, it's trying to make, give people less and less wages. The people at the top are taking more and more, um, and it's squeezing the life out of people more and more. I mean, I don't know how many of us would have survived in recent times without Aldi's and Littles, you know, uh, the, the, the difference they've made. But, um, the main thing is is that the the system ha is becoming more and more desperate because, as as I mentioned um, a wee while ago, eventually if people haven't got money to spend and they can't buy things, 
then the system of growth, then the things are being bought in shops. And you can't, there's no point to keep producing things that people aren't buying the system. I mean, I can remember Chancellor of the Exchequer down the years in the UK, almost irritated with us. Um, it's a conservative one saying, you know, for goodness sake, the economy will only continue to grow if you lot will, you know, he didn't say you lot, but if you will only spend more money, you know, and I thought at that point, you know, <laughs> Does he even realize what he's saying? You know, is, 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 is if he's dictating that this is the way, this is the primary purpose behind our lives. <laughs> that we, our purpose in life is to spend, is to earn money, to spend money, to keep the system going. You know, I mean, is that our purpose on this earth? Is that what we're here for? Is that the only thing we're here for? And I think that question is being asked more and more now, you know, uh, by people. And, uh, you know, particularly the more they see things beginning to fragment. And, uh, and I, you know, I think these deeper truths that people are looking at can be reflected in the kind of life that we are going to have to live in the future. Okay, well, Peter, let's move to a closing segment then and focus on some thoughts about how to break out, break free from all of this and maybe enact change, you know, how that process might begin, what that might look like. For me, and again, we've hinted at this, the key is knowing what you want. So that implies self-awareness, self-knowledge, and real honesty with yourself about yourself and your circumstances, sort of a life audit, if you will. And it's much better to, to conduct one of these through choice and not through crisis Though, of course, yes. transformation through trauma is a thing and many people's lives have changed for the better as a result of something terrible happening to them. But it would be ideal if we didn't get to that point. But whether people are undergoing a catastrophic event in their life and they, you know, something's got to give, things have to change as a result, or whether they just have a niggling feeling that things need to be better and they can't go on as they are, beginning with that self-awareness, I think, that self-knowledge is important. But that, again, it's something we're not really encouraged in. For many people, it's a domain of religion or perhaps spiritual practices, things with a vaguely new age whiff about them. The sort of thing that for many people feel is fringe and it's certainly got nothing to do with the mainstream culture you know, of uh, consumerism and entertainment and all the rest of it. Yeah, I think, I think people are exploring other areas um in in the in the in the time that they have off um you know um as you say previously it, it was the churches where people went to but of course the churches are struggling for re reasons that i've, I've, I've spoken about because they don't offer a genuine alternative to what is happening in society people can't relate um to they feel that the churches don't relate to the lives they they lead um, but a lot of people are moving into, into uh, mindfulness areas, meditation, uh, tai chi, yoga, you know, uh, more creative outlets. Um, they're exploring those. And within those, I think they um, are just tapping into something that is within themselves. It is opening them up more to things that they've always wanted to explore, um, even if it's just in an evening class um, or a, a kind of a retreat that they go on once a year, 
and uh, or it's indeed you know a holiday that involves you know camping uh, out outside nature i think nature is a great um force that r- resonates within in us um with this deeper side it, it connects when we're in the hills um you know i say i live up in the highlands here and I, I, that kind of walking in the, in, in the hills, something is happening within ourselves. Or indeed, if we're in living in a city, we walk in a park for a particular reason. Or, you know, uh, all of us are trying to connect. Uh, no, we're wanting a break, sure, but we're also, I think there's some aspect of us wanting to connect with something outdoors. Um, and that is really, and I think more and more we want, once that journey starts, we want that to be part of our lives, um, yeah, and because it feels good, I think it, it, it is striking a chord within us, and uh, and I think once we've we've had the courage, or we've been propelled into that by whatever has happened in our lives, or we are sick and tired of watching on the television the politicians you know, offering this great deceit to us, then and I think once more and more people embark on that and, and, and talk about that word of mouth is a great um, you know it does stir things within people once, once you hear about it from, from friends or, or you witness it in friends then I think the, there is beginning to be a movement um, in that direction um, and uh, I find great hope in that and I see up here more and more people um, taking to the hills in the weekend and exploring these different avenues um, that uh, are all part of this deeper journey. We are victims of what I call the three pillars of separation, and those are uh, from the world around us. You mentioned nature, from each other, whether as just family or friends or just fellow human beings, you know, who we've never met, and but also from ourselves. You know, we're strangers to ourselves. And one of the things you mentioned, meditation. Uh, you've mentioned spending time in nature, perhaps spending time alone as a chance to look inside. And one thing, of course, uh, that we also suffer from, and this is exacerbated tremendously in the sort of 24-7 noisy, constantly active societies that we live in, is that we have, generally speaking, we have great discomfort. We experience great discomfort when we're alone, uh, when we're required to be silent or inactive. So and being alone, silent and inactive externally inactive anyway, can be very, very powerful ways to tune into something else or to experience something else to replenish ourselves. But all of those things are, if not frowned upon, then they're certainly not encouraged. You only have to look at people. I call it the dentist waiting room, waiting room syndrome. Yeah. If you've ever watched someone trying to sit and just wait for something, they always have to find something to do, something to say, a noise to make. I usually find actually the the quiet coach, the quiet carriage and trains is a good place to be, not necessarily because it's supposedly quiet, but because it's often almost empty, because although people will people will double up on seats in other parts of the train rather than go into the quiet coach where there's free seats, because being in there they're required to be quiet and they can't have their devices on all the time and a lot of people struggle with this. Yes, I, I can remember um years ago uh in the Church of Scotland, a friend of mine and I, we start have trying at the end of the service, uh, instead of, I mean, prayer has its place, 
but the problem with prayer is constantly talking all the time and it's constantly telling God how we think he should be running our lives or our higher conscious or higher spiritual being, whatever, whatever we want to call, um, this, this, this spiritual presence within ourselves. Anyway, we try to introduce silence and meditation. Um, and, you know, there was, as you mentioned, there was a rustling of feet very quickly. Uh, people struggle with it. Um, Increasingly, we see, uh, used to see people, I was at um, Waverley Station in Edinburgh, and um, p- people waiting for trains, and, and uh, the, the, the people used to wait quite long, or they read a paper, or something, but now almost instantly they arrive on the platform, of course, the first thing they get out is the mobile phone. It's an accessory to not, to avoid, we are com- uncomfortable, I think, just standing still and we feel almost embarrassed that people are looking. We can maybe we'll become very self-conscious, but it, we feel it, it, it connects us perhaps in a false way with being in touch with uh, what is happening in the world. It has become an excess. It used to be a cigarette pouch. It was you know, light up on, on the platform, but it, it's another addiction, uh, another one of these addictions that the capitalist system has thrown at us to keep us functioning within it. Of course, it has its uses. I'm not knocking it completely, but when you can't put it down, then, of course, it is an addiction, and, and that is uh, the state we are in now. I The need um, to explore this deeper presence uh, um, it, it, it is something, I, I think there will be a backlash against um, the kind of social media, mobile phone, technological thing, probably in, amongst my daughter and son's generation. I think, you know, eventually it is, I'm at the moment, a lot of them can't put it down at all. And uh, we don't know the harmful effects long term it is, it is having on us because it is relatively short term. But I think they they will react against it. You are already certain celebrity people say they are getting rid of it and not using it for certain periods of time, and I think that could influence younger people um, because it does prevent people. It is another yet another distraction, another addiction that prevents people from, from confronting this deeper truth about themselves. It has its place if at the same time people are doing that, they are at the same time at the weekends walking in the hills, then okay, you know. But if it, 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 is, it, if it is the primary thing that is stopping people confronting this truth, then it, at this particular time, it, it is a dangerous thing. You touched upon the notion of meditation there. For some people, that'll be kind of, oh, don't know about that, can't do that, don't know anything about it. I'm an advocate of it as you are, but let's just say this program isn't about meditation. We're not saying that people need to meditate. However, making space within your own mind, within your own being, is just really important in the world that we live in. And for many people, this urge currently takes the form of what I referred to earlier as a sort of mindless leisure and recreation and entertainment they're looking for a respite from everything that's going on around them but at the end of the day it's not really respite it's just a different color of the same thing really and the nub of it for me is if the word meditation or mindfulness or any of these things that are quite i mean buzzwords now for quite a while you know we read about them even in the mainstream media 
don't be put off by that. What, from my perspective, what I'm talking about really here is to try to be less reactive to the world around you, less instinctively reactive, flying off the handle, driven to emotional highs and lows and extremes by events around you, people, places and events uh, that are causing you turmoil or causing what I referred to earlier as sugar highs, you know, surges of, of temporary pleasure and then a resulting crash afterwards leaves you feeling terrible. Try to become the observer of these thoughts and emotions and realize that it's not you. Now, we can make a whole show about this in itself, but for me, that's the key. Just try and still your mind and make some space. And within that space, you then can find a place to think about your priorities or rethink your priorities. Help yourself to know what it is that you really want. Yes, I think, you know, at some point, um, there is a manicness to, to the way we live it. You know, if you have a hard week at work and on a Friday night, you go out and spend your money and, you know, have a bit to drink, a lot to drink, you know, and a lot to eat, uh, you know, as if that compensates in a few hours for the very hard work. And for some people, not pleasant work. For others, it's okay. But, you know, that isn't really a compensation, you know, and, and at the, uh, and when you wake up the following morning, you know, uh, you know, and particularly on a Monday morning, you've got to go through it all again. You know, um, med- meditation is a central part of the the book for me. Every chapter has got a meditation in, um, and, and whether it's mindfulness or it's just silence in the hills or walking in the park, uh, because it is transforming, um, and uh, only experience will lead us. To realize that, you know, I've been meditating for over 30 years now. I mean, you look at the, the, the vast history, people say, well, what evidence is for that? I mean, there's a vast history going back ions of people who have sought um, the, the quieter side to life to, to explore these deeper things, to take them on, on this journey. So that history is packed with evidence of, of people have been transformed in whatever, you don't have to go enough to a monastery to do this. You know, you could just go out walking in your park, but on a regular basis. And the idea that you could, you know, just do it, you know, once a week or, you know, that there has to be a kind of commitment rather than uh, uh, as an analogy to, to what we're facing environmentally. And I says we need to change. And as part of that personal change is introducing in a regular way some kind of silence into our lives it's a change in a habit you know and uh, i think the benefits uh as gradually we are being transformed as as people are, are enormous it's and it uh, another way to do it is, is you know with regards to the environmental crisis we're facing is just taking time to consume less in in Society to, and it, less doesn't have to mean it can. It can actually meet, be beneficial to us. We can, can actually enjoy if I don't know people who grow vegetables in the garden or something. You know, or, or you can make something um, very special out of less. Um, for instance, you you can have them instead of you know you know. And I must admit, we do you know is watch eat a meal in front of the television or something. You know, but if you have a, a, a small amount to eat, but you actually make something of it with candles and sit at the table and, uh, you know, uh, with your partner and, 
you could make a very special meal out of that, which we've done from time to time, you know, and, uh, or you can sit outside, um, you know, if the weather allows, um, or even if you've got a fleece on, you know, connecting to nature, as I say. These, these transforming changes that you could, we can all make in our lives, um, um, can uh, have an impact of joining these classes that I mentioned earlier, um, one that whatever we one particularly suits us. Um, it's realizing that uh, things can change, and uh, you know, a life of excess doesn't necessarily, or even a, a life of a lot, isn't necessarily the way forward. The, the, the system, because it, a, a, the system is built on something is actually economic system but is it insatiable it, it it just goes on and on but it doesn't necessarily it doesn't bring happiness to us i mean happiness isn't isn't in the possession of things particularly it's it's in a sense we can discover it in, in a sense of peace uh, deep within us in, in our heart the sort of space that that i'm talking about creating and that you're offering from your perspective ultimately for me is about confronting a couple of big issues that I, that I think lie at the root of all this. The first one is confronting death, the inevitab- inevitability of that. And that, of course, then speaks to the nature of life, whether life has any meaning or not. And I think that what a lot of we've been trying to get away from consciously and unconsciously for quite a long time are the fact that life is finite, that we are, as individuals, we are going to die. The issue for many people is that they feel that the life they've been living is ultimately meaningless, so they've been trying to give it meaning externally through all of the things that we've been talking about and the ways that we live. And these are not things that we should... They are things that we do run away from, but they're not things to be afraid of. Ultimately, I find, and you can give me your perspective on this, incredibly empowering to consider questions of the meaning of life and to consider the nature of life and death and our own mortality. Yeah, um, I have got a, a chapter, just returning to the book, on um, um, confronting death. Um, and uh, it, it, it relates to a, a, a woman at the end of her, she's got cancer and she's running a business at the same time and she's trying to leave a legacy for her family. And she... Uh, as it, as it can be for many people, tragically, it, it is a very difficult thing to let let go, um, even for people of faith. Um, you know, and a friend in this particular story, Rachel and Ruth's story, is trying to. She has some sense of spirituality in her life, um, but we're all at different stages. We're all on different journeys. Um, but that confronting of, of McCulley does come to us all at some point. As my earlier story about the bishop in the church and the 80-year-old, you know, at some point, even if it's as late as that, um, we're all... I mean, it, it does refer back to this leap of faith that at some point, individuals will have to take. There is a quote from the American psychiatrist Scott Peck. I mean, this is ultimately, I think, what we're aiming at. But you know, it can take a long time to get there. What he said was, our unconscious is God, God within us. We are born that we might become, as a conscious individual, a new life form of God. 
if we can identify our mature free will with that of God, then we will have become one form of the grace of God. Now, whether you want to call that God or a higher conscious or whatever, I think in silence, in nature, these areas we've been talking about, meditation if you want, gradually we become sense, uh, a sense, we have a sense that we are part of something bigger. I go back right to the beginning of our chat together when I talked about as a child, feeling that there was sensing, maybe because I was close to my birth, there was, there was, there was something deeper within me. There was a sense of needing to go on a journey of truth. I, I've never forgotten that. And, and, uh, and, uh, despite the pressures to, to force me away from that, that journey of truth has taken me through years of meditation and, and silence to, to that sense that we are part of something bigger. I, I remember feeling about way back then that when, when my careers office, we were talking about the careers office, you mentioned he told me, and, and I was, the thing that really shocked me about what he said was what I needed to do individually. I was to do this individual or that individual because I had to make my own way in the world, buy this house, buy all these things, but everything, the emphasis with individual. And that really surprised me because I instinctively felt that I was to be, should have been part of a community. Or it was life was a communal life. I, I was part of something with other people and I would make my contribution within a, a wider family or wider community. Uh, I traveled a little bit in the South Pacific because I was, remember reading about uh, Gauguin and Robert Louis Stevenson from up here who, who went out to the South Pacific because uh, they, they, they were... And I discovered there that still even, this was in the eight, 19, uh, late 1980s, still a, a, an inherent sense of communal living there uh, amongst people. There was, they all lived in small valleys, which were small houses, um, the different families. And then within that small village, there was a, a, a communal valley, which was easily the biggest uh, building. But they, they lived this shared sense of life together. Individualism, not individuality, but uh, that was encouraged, but a sense of the individual, as we do in Western society, the indiv individuality is, 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 is individualistic nature of life is encouraged more than anything. But there, there was a, a sense of communal life was more important. And, and everyone watching out for each other. <clears throat> and I think that, taking me back to the, the times of science, inherently I feel that is the way we are supposed to live. And I do believe that in the, in the cra facing the crisis that we are at the moment, that that is what we are going to have to rediscover to get through these crises we, fa we, we face. And, and I think we will discover something richer in that, I think that will take a lot of the pressure that we feel at the moment offer off us. I think we'll, we will discover something uh, richer in that. Living with less isn't necessarily going to mean, you know, a, a life that um, we're going to find austere uh, and uh, lead to a sense of despondency. I think the very opposite. I think we may discover riches in that life many of us um, have never experienced before. Well, closing thought, 
from myself, Peter. Uh, we spoke earlier about this idea of sins of the Father, how pressures that have come down to us from those who came before us are perpetuated in ourselves and therefore in those who come after us. But I would encourage people, and this is, if you, you make this space within your, within your mind, within your inner self to look at things, see things more clearly. You can begin to see how that can change in an instant. Talk about tomorrow is another day. Well, each moment even is, you know, is created anew. You are not what happened to you. You are what you choose to become. And it doesn't matter what happened or to those who came before you, what they did or what even has happened to you, what is currently happening. That can change in a heartbeat. There are some things that are more difficult to change than others, maybe physical circumstances. We understand that, but it all begins with your thinking. And that's, I would encourage people, don't be deterred. Don't think, I am this, I am that, this happened to me. My father was such and such, so therefore that's what I am. I will never be able to do X, Y, and Z. Because all that's doing is you're saying, you're talking about what you cannot be, or what you are without choice, what you cannot do, what will never happen. And if those are just thoughts, then what have you got to lose in flipping them around? Absolutely nothing. Yes, no, I agree with that 100%. I mean, it's, um, I think one of, one of the, um, for, for many people, one of the tragedies of the economic system in which we live is how it restricts us, how it confines us into particular roles. You see this then acted out on our television programs where the only questions that seem to be asked to people are, what's your name? Where do you come from? And what job do you do? As if that sums us all up. We have vast potential. And, and I, I believe all of us have some kind of potential that, you know, at times at school we tapped into it a, to a degree and then, uh, and in our education, but then get lost in the need to function within this society. I think given more time, and I, and I think we may in, in time move to uh, a more balanced sense of work and because we all need, always need to work, but a most balanced sense of work and time to reflect and be more creative, um, then I think we can discover the more whole side to who we are and we can move away from this um, restrictive way of living, this collective mindset way of living that, um, you know, almost preordains the way we should live our lives. Um, when that is anything but the truth. Today, Peter, we've been talking about your book, Spiritual Beings or Economic Tools, Just Who Are We? Now, that's widely available. People can find it easily, all the usual outlets. Uh, before we sign off, just tell folks about your website or anything else you'd like to share. Yes, um, I have my own website, and that is www.peterstrother.co.uk. It's a WordPress um, website. Uh, where I uh, write about the, the various things. Uh, I try to keep up blogs and uh, information about uh, new books that I hope to have coming out soon. I'm continuing to um, explore new forms of writing, um, both fictional and non-fictional, and, and uh, will try and keep my blog up more regularly than I do. <laughs> but no, I'm, like all of us, watching the what is happening in our world today very closely, and, and, the, and the, you know, wider than our, our own media coverage, uh, coming as a from a journalist background, 
Um, I'm encouraged by the different forms of media that are available to us now um, that are offering different views. But things are shifting out there. They are changing. And um, while many of us are very anxious about the times ahead, at the same time, I think we are moving into times where there are new opportunities and changes taking place. Splendid. Well, once again, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you. It's been good to talk to you, Greg.